Hi, I'm Ali Hassan, host of CBC's Laugh Out Loud. Do you like to laugh? Because we're serving up big laughs each week. We feature comedians from across Canada. You might already be fans of some of them, and others might be new discoveries. We record emerging comedians and established pros in front of live audiences all across the country, and we promise that you'll be literally laughing out loud. You can find Laugh Out Loud on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hey, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Q. Okay, so given that this is a podcast, I should probably tell you what this guy looks like. It'll become clear why in just a minute. Alan Richson is like six foot three. He's got... He looks like a, like a bodybuilder or like a professional wrestler. Listen, when you meet him, could not be kinder or friendlier, but you're like very keenly aware that this guy could fold you into a pretzel whenever he wanted. I mean, it makes sense. Alan got a lot of attention for starring as Jack Reacher in the Amazon Prime series Reacher, which was this really big six, which is this really big successful show. Jack Reacher, if you haven't seen it, ex-military investigator, now travels the land helping people out of jams with a bit of brains and a lot of brawn. So, you know, the, the physique is important, right? And in this new film, Ordinary Angels, Alan uh, stars in it with the Oscar winner Hilary Swank. Has nothing to do with his physique. Has nothing to do with the fact that he's built like a yield sign. And, and he'll talk about that. Alan plays a father who um, has just lost his wife, is in danger of lo- losing his young daughter to a, a rare illness. And the community has to raise money to to help her. And it's a true story. And it's quite a beautiful, emotional true story, too. But so is Alan's, and, and we talk a little bit about that. Why he thought it was important to do a role that didn't involve beating someone up. What it's like when you do a scene with an Oscar winner, and you can tell she's not sure about you. Why did Alan audition for American Idol? And we, we have the clip. Why did he write a letter to Tom Cruise when he booked Reacher? And did Tom write back? Here's my conversation with Alan Richson. This is a beautiful uh, film. I, I, I gave a little bit of the synopsis in the introduction. Uh, you're a widower, now at risk of losing your youngest daughter to, to liver disease. Uh, in massive debt, you need money to help her get a liver transplant. Hilary Swank plays a single mom, uh, a, a hairdresser who steps in and offers help. True story, a, a real-life story. So th- this script found me right at the end of uh, – I should say right when Reacher season one premiered. And I just felt like it was such a beautiful, true, dr- dramatic story and so different than what I was, um, you know, the other other opportunities I was seeing. That I just, like, I, you know, I chased it down and I was not right for the part. <laughs> you know, the, uh, you know, the, this guy in real life, he's, he's um, real thin, very blue collar, you know, um, very different build, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, like doesn't look like he can punch his way out of the, out of the, the weather yeah. uh, that he faces in the storm. <laughs> and, uh, and when I sat down with John Gunn, the, the writer director, he was like, you know, uh, Lionsgate said, I had to take a meeting with you. I know you really want to do this. You're not who I had in mind for this part. Like you're the furthest thing from it. And I was like, look, I get it. I get it. But I've got three kids. I understand the, the, what it would be like to experience the pain of loss of, um, you know, of a, a child. And I can bring that to the part, you know, the, the essence of, of this, this man and his struggle, I think I can capture. Um, so I, I, I basically, you know, I begged, I begged for the part and, um, I was just lucky, lucky to get it. When, when, when the time came that you got it, did you get a chance to meet the real life people behind the story? I've never, no, I've, I've never met him. I know the, the real Ed Schmidt, um, 
uh, and you know this. Maybe that's for the best. I you know when I, when you're playing like you know real life heroes, it's you know it's it's always humbling because you never really know what the response is, is going to be. But for for example, I I played a, a Anders Lassen in, in Ministry of Ungentlemanly Warfare, a mm-hmm. movie on the way with the Guy, Guy Ritchie, Guy Ritchie. Yeah. and the author of the book that the movie was based on. I met him on the last day of filming, and he was so happy, so so happy to meet you. I've, I've wanted to see Anders Lassen come to life on screen forever. But we told Anders Lassen's sister, who's still with us, and when she saw a picture of you, she bawled her eyes out. She wept bitterly that you got you got the part. She said, "You're n- he's nothing like oh, Anders no. Lassen." You know? so, like, <laughs> I've experienced disappointing people in real life, so I'm always real. I'm, I'm a little reticent to meet the real ones. I don't want to let anybody down. But um, no, we have, we have not had the privilege of meeting yet. The the I find your story really really interesting, but I can't quite place all of it together because, you know, when I look at the story of you and how you got into the arts, there's just one thing I, I can't quite figure out. So I know you're from uh, Niceville, Niceville, Florida. Niceville, Florida. Is great, great I name, hate from, by the way. Yeah, thank you. Um, and, and you, I come from Meanville, Newfoundland, yeah. by the way. Um, and you come yeah. from a, a military family. Your dad's a retired U.S. Air Force Chief Master Sergeant. That's right. right. Um, I, I don't talk to many people who come from military families who end up in the in the arts. Oh, is that so? Yeah. But I'm curious about, I, I talk to more people who, don't take this the wrong way. I'm not saying, what are you doing here? Yeah. I'm actually saying- How does it happen? Because I find it really interesting. I do too. You, you find <laughs> I do too. Good. Because I, I, you know, I talk to people who, oh, my parents were teachers or whatever. My mom was an right. English teacher. You know, my dad was a, I talked to someone. Uh, who did I talk to? Pablo Schreiber. Talked to him the other day. It's like dad was a painter. Mom was a. Dad was an th- uh, acting coach. Oh, there you go. See, nepotism. <laughs> this industry is full of it. Unbelievable. <laughs> I, I got to leave my own way. I got a list of names. <laughs> I don't know nobody. How does, how does acting and entertaining come into your life? I'm just a hardcore opportunist. You know, the world sort of the, the world helps guide you towards your truth. You know, and if you listen, I think you'll you know you'll find it. But um, I you know I, I sing. You know, yeah. I'm very musical. Yeah. That was my first love. Um, Growing I was, up, uh, yeah. And uh, you know, I was I was pursuing a degree in music theater, and I you know I was in ballet, thinking like, what the hell am I gonna do? with a degree in music theater. <laughs> like mm-hmm. if I want to go to Broadway, you don't need a degree. You got to go sing well and perform. Mm-hmm. So I just, I don't know. So university wasn't for me. And, uh, you know, I had academic scholarships and everything. And I just, I just wasn't, it just, it, I knew it wasn't for me. Um, but you know, my parents have always supported everything I've ever done except for modeling. They, my dad didn't talk to me for a few <laughs> months when I said I was going to do that. I was quit school to go to be a model dad. Uh, he didn't get it. I didn't get it either, but it just, I needed some excuse to like spread my wings. You know, you know what I'm realizing is just, I'm, I'm applying on you other people's stories. That's, that's all I'm doing. I'm thinking about Jim because Jim Morrison, very famously, you know, he was the, from the doors, you know, famous uh, rock star. Mm-hmm. Dad, uh, I believe his dad was like a very important uh, general in in the United States Army, or no, in the Navy. Anyway, uh, couldn't stand that his son was this this rock star. You know what? The more I'm talking to you about it, the more I think I'm applying like a, a story I read about in the news to to a real person. No, but it's uh, it's a good question. It's a good question. I mean, really, how do you find a path in this business without? Um, some, someone pioneering it for you in some way, it doesn't make a lot of sense. You know, um, you know, um, I come from a very blue collar family. My mom didn't, you know, she was, 
not an artist. She, her occupation was literally whatever was closest to her three sons. So however she could keep her thumb on us, it was like she was, so she would like run the, it wasn't even a teacher. She would like run the, the computer lab at a school so she could scan discs for viruses and then check our attendance records for herself personally. <laughs> like, they, you know, it was, you know, my dad was in the military, you know, so um, I don't know. I, I think music is where, if we're going to talk about artistry, where I was sort of informed that there may be something like that going on. That you might be good at something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Can, can we play the clip song? Do we have the clip? Oh, is there? You are the sunshine <laughs> of my life. Oh, God. Oh, God. Is That's Paula going to come out from behind a curtain? We keep her on retainer. You are the apple of my oh, Lord. Oh. Okay, okay, okay. Tell, tell me what we're listening to. Uh, this is, uh, I believe, this is American Idol season three. And you auditioned. And I was probably, I don't know, 19 years old, something like that. Yeah. And, uh, I was, I think I was modeling in Miami and I had a lot of, the show was like really popular at the time. And I, I, I didn't really watch TV, but a lot of friends were like, you should audition for this show. Anyway, they flew me to LA. So I was a semifinalist and it was my first time to LA. That is again, talking about being an opportunist. That was my first, uh, venture into seeing what the, the, the kind of passion that people had for the arts and really what sold me on LA, this is going to sound really bad. I remember being in the room. So they broke us up into three different rooms. Mm -hmm. And one of the rooms was the final 10 or 12 or whatever. And two of the rooms were getting sent home. And so, you know, they they walk in, um, uh, Paula, Simon, everybody, they walk in and Randy, uh, you are not going further. And I, to me, I was like, oh man, this was such a cool experience. Like, I'm so glad. Wow. I got to go to LA. You know, in my head, I'm like, that was fun. You know, on to the next thing life has for me. And all around me, people are bawling. But this girl <laughs> right next to me, it, it, she, what, she fell to her back like a child. It was like kicking her fists and hands in the air, screaming, tears streaming down her face. And all I could think was like, I want to know what it's like to like want something that bad. I want to know what it's like to want something that bad. Right. I've never felt like that about anything. You know, I mean, I've always been like, wow, if it doesn't work out, I'm going to figure something else out. If I need to eat and I'm not an actor by tomorrow, um, I'll, uh, I'll dig ditches. Like I don't, I've like, I'll figure it out. Yeah. Like, I will, some, life will have something interesting. So, so, it was, I'd never seen that before. And did you, did you want that? Is that, or, or I you... was, I envied her. I envied that thing that she had inside her to make her weep bitterly when she heard no, like, like her life had been plucked from her. Like, a, like she'd lost a child or something. I mean, this was obviously so meaningful to her. And I was like, I kind of want to know what that feels like to like want something that bad. And and does that happen with acting for you then? Like, are you able to go like, oh, once I found acting, you know, I get it. I get what she was dealing with. Yes. In a way, in a way, I'm, I'm, I'm much more level headed than that as, as, as stupid as that sounds. If you know me and I'm, I'm, I'm bipolar and temperamental and whatever, that's a terrible um picture to paint of myself. I but, get you. I get you though. I get but you. like, I, you know, um, yes, I care deeply about what I do for a living storytelling and the medium that, that, um, that, that I'm in where we, we, we get to either offer wish fulfillment or escapism or, or, or plant seeds for ideas and conversations that should be had. I mean, I love what I do. Um, I don't know. I, I, I don't know if I'd fall on my back and cry if I didn't get a part, but I've also, you know, I was really, I was blessed and I use that word very carefully. Um, 
I was blessed with uh, heavy losses early on in my career that were teachers for me. Like not getting stuff? Absolutely. For example, uh, the very first sh- show that I was on, I, I you know, I, so I, I, after American Idol, I moved out to LA. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to be there mm-hmm. I, and like, and see if it, it was infectious, that, that thing that happened to her, mm-hmm. you know, maybe I'd catch it. Yeah. And I, I, uh, I had a modeling agent who was sending guys out on auditions and I told him, I said, I'd, I'd like to go too and make a little extra money if we can. And we'll see if I can, maybe I'm good at it. I don't know. And I went out and I booked like this little horror film. And then I got this job on Smallville playing Aquaman. And it was in season five. And the episode that I guest starred on set a ratings record for the show. So it instantly spawned a a spinoff. So we were negotiating for the spinoff and I was getting calls from the studio. Like at, like at like nine o'clock at night, my phone would ring and like, Hey, Alan, um, I'm the guy who's here to help you keep your head on the ground because you're on a rocket right now. If you ever need anything fixed, if you ever get into trouble, I'm your guy. Day or night, 24-7, you've got my number. If you're in trouble, give me a call. And I was like, whoa. I was like, I don't think I'm going to get into trouble. I don't even like going to clubs. Yeah, like, yeah. Much, like, much less the kind of trouble I that just want to work. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, needs to fix for you. Okay, yeah. okay right, right, right. Uh, So I have like fixers calling me. So I'm like, oh, man, this is like really happening. Um, and uh, and then there was a merger that took place between – it was UPN and Warner Brothers merged to create uh, CW. The president of UPN took over and he saw me, this guy with no ex- – he made a great call, to be honest with you. He's like, who the hell is this dude th- thinks he's going to get his own show? That's not how this is going to happen. You're going to find somebody more experienced for a monstrously expensive pilot yeah. with a lot of water and stuff. Um, and so I lost the job. And oh, it, it was the best thing that ever happened to me. Why? Oh, my God. It, because it, it taught me to hold loosely to these – there's this very fickle business and not to count on anything. And if I hadn't learned that – also, you know, if I had if I had gotten that show and it had gone, um, I never would have been able to do the kinds of things I'm doing now. Yeah. I, I really believe that. I think it would, have, it, would have, uh, it would have teed me up for a very different career. You would have got stuck in a certain kind of television. Yeah, sure. Being very diplomatic there, not saying what kind of television I'm talking about. I'm Tom Power. You're listening to Q. You're in the middle of my conversation with Alan Richson, who has a new movie out with Hilary Swank. It's called Ordinary Angels. So it's important uh, for this next part, if you haven't seen the show Reacher, which is the the story of this guy, Jack Reacher, um, I'll give you a little bit of the plot. Jack Reacher, big, tough, ex-military guy, travels the U.S., helping good people, crushing bad guys. That's kind of all you got to know. Here's more of my conversation with Alan Richson. I mean, when when Reacher comes along, um, which was the uh, the role that Jack Reacher was the role that that uh, Tom Cruise played first. Like you said uh, at the very beginning, when we first sat down and talked, you were like, there wasn't people were like, what's the show going to be? What's going on? Yeah. Who's who's this guy? Uh, and then qu- very quickly, you it becomes the, one of the biggest shows on TV. It becomes this incredible success uh, uh, on Amazon. Um, does that, what, what you just told me, like, hey, don't take anything for granted, prevent you from being able to be like, oh, okay, this is really working? Uh, kind of. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, um, I also am, you know, um, uh, we could talk about imposter syndrome. <laughs> um, you know, we could talk about skepticism. But really, I am allergic to resting on laurels. I... Well, I do. I never want to be the kind of story that's like, "What happened to that guy?" You know, because I got cocky and stopped really 
Yeah. You know, stopped really focusing on on what what the audience wants and, and deserves out of a out of, out of a story. Um, and so, you know, and so I'm always challenging my my teammates, you know, in uh, you know Reacher, especially, you know, like we can always be better, um, you know, and 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 more honest and authentic, to, you know, to, towards the books and towards the audience. And so, you know, always pushing. Um, and it can be annoying for people, you know, because they're like, "Hey, look, we got the biggest show on TV right now," mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. But it's just not how I operate. So before this this second season came out, actually, um, let me give you a little context. Okay. When season one came out, again, a lot of anticipation. Yeah, we were waiting. Yeah. It releases because of the UK on like at like seven o'clock on a Thursday. It, it technically releases on a Friday and plays over the weekend. By Saturday. It had been on long enough to have these numbers come in, and it was a record-setting show for Amazon Prime, and it was at the time the biggest show in t- on TV uh-huh. in, in the world. Uh-huh. And I knew by like like eleven a.m. on Saturday, I mm-hmm. got the call, and I was like, "Oh my god! Like we got a hit on our hands. I can't. I've never been a part of something like that. Everybody always talked about the projects that I've been like. This is going to be the one. This is going to be the one. And and you, those are the ones that never pan out the way that you hope they do. Um, so season two rolls around. And that was my experience. So I'm sort of anticipating a phone call at some point over the weekend mm. and it never comes. And I was like, oh God. And, and so I, I really try to stay away from like reading comments and, you know, um, I, but I, you know, there's so many articles and, and it's so much, it's the topic of conversation. It's hard to avoid seeing what people think about this thing. And there's a lot of people complaining like, oh, I don't like the one tenth, and I want to see more, more Reacher on his own. And. I was like, oh no, people aren't liking it. It's not working this year. So Sunday rolls around, still no phone call. I got to work on Monday. So I'm at work on Monday. And I swear to God, it's like the show didn't even come out. Like nobody's talking about it. My crew's just like, it's any old Wednesday on our, on our set. We've been shooting together for months. And uh, uh, I was like, I think we're getting canceled. And so I called my wife and I was like, I think we're, I don't think this is going to keep going. I just want you to know, I, I got a really bad feeling and, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know what we're going to do if it doesn't. She goes, babe, like we've been through this before. We've yeah. survived a lot. Like I'm with you and we're not here. You know, I'm not with you because of Reacher, yeah. you know, like we, we got each other. We got our kids. We're going to be, ha- we're, we've got this, yeah. you know, so she's like championing me being homeless. And, uh, <laughs> and I finally, at the end of the day, nobody had said a word. And I was like, man, I can't take this anymore. I do not like being a nag, but I called my showrunner and I was like, so like, have you heard anything? Am I the only one that wants to know what the hell's happening right now? And he's like, oh yeah, uh, well, they're waiting on official numbers to come in. You know, Nielsen's got doing it different. I don't know, but they said something about mega hit. So I think we're good. <laughs> I'm like, oh, okay. And then the, the next day we got the numbers. And it was, it was four times the audience of season one. I mean, it's just unprecedented. So I, um, but I'm a, I'm a, I'm like, I'm yeah. like always like, uh, yeah. you know, tomorrow could be the end if we're not great. So I'm, you know. I was hoping you could tell me a story that I heard about you that when you got this gig, um, you'd be well within your rights to not reach out to anyone who had sort of embodied this character. But I heard that you reached out to Tom Cruise. I'll also say a notoriously hard guy to reach out to, like maybe a hard guy to to get on the phone. I don't, I don't. Can you tell me the story? Well, so okay, so you know, so so what what had happened? (laughs) What what happened was, I, I I booked the part. And and nobody had really addressed the elephant in the room, which is that I was taking over this role from Tom Cruise, who's a legend and I revere. And I felt like I should say something, <laughs> you know, like I should acknowledge 
um, my my a fair bit of gratitude that I had for for him passing the torch. And um, uh, so I wrote a letter to Don Granger, who's my boss. He's uh, had a film at Skydance who produces our show and has had a great hand in developing Reacher and bringing that to uh, the, the medium of TV and film. He right. signed uh, a deal for the IP for the rights. Um, I think uh, I think it was at like book 10 when he got a hold of this and partnered with Lee Child and started, you know, like this could be a thing. And so anyway, so Don Granger and Tom Cruise have had a relationship for a long time. They made a lot of movies together. And so it made sense for them to, to, to take a stab at this. Um, so, Don was a part of that whole world the first time, and and he was he was very much a part. He's still very much a part of the world that we've built um, for Prime. Um, so I so I gave him the letter, and I was like, "What do you th- you know What do you think? Should we? I really feel like I should s- just let him know I'm I'm grateful, and I'm uh, I'll do everything I can to you know to make him proud, you know. And um, and he took the letter and he said, "I'll think about it, and think about how to approach this. You know, it's a, it's a delicate topic." And the next day he came back to me and he said, um, I've decided it's not a good idea to give him the letter. And we just, we'll let this lie where it is. I was like, okay, all right. And so we never, uh, never really addressed it. And, uh, and I think it's fine that way. I think everybody's fine that way. This story doesn't end with, he, and then, but then he did get the letter. No, well, here's, oh, uh, well, should I say this? Go on. well there's no closure we don't have any closure i don't know i so i went on so so i i I mentioned this um i was on jimmy kimmel heard of it and uh and we uh he we we were talking about this and uh, so so it you know i just i i told the anecdotal story about the letter and um we got a call from tom cruise's team tom really wants to talk to you um so he's so he just got my contact info, and so I'm I'm awaiting a conversation with Mr. Cruz. Come on, pull out the phone. We'll do it right <laughs> now. <laughs> right now. Yeah. Anyway, um, so I think I think I think he understands. I think he's, he's I think he's aware. Um, I you know he's also a very busy man. So we'll see we'll see what transpires. But um, uh, that's where it is. So maybe next time we come on, we'll I'll tell you about the conversation he and I have. I really wanted to do the Mac Galloway on the current thing where like we bring on Tom Cruise halfway, you know, but he's not returning my calls. Uh, that's the first part of my conversation with Alan Richson. Uh, more of our conversation coming up, including this moment where we talk a little bit about mental health. And he stops me mid question and he says, I know I don't look like I fit the profile for this conversation. You're going to want to stick around for that. More Q coming up after this. Hi, I'm Jesse Crookshank. Jesse Crookshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl, yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. I'm Tom Power. You're listening to Q. You're in the middle of my conversation with the actor Alan Richson. Alan, if you haven't heard of him, is the star of the show called Reacher, where he plays an ex-military dude who fights criminals and you know, battles evil, that whole thing. He's here because of his new movie, Ordinary Angels, which is the true story of a dad trying to raise money for his daughter who's terminally ill. But 
If you missed it in the first part, it's worth mentioning that Alan gets a lot of attention for being this strong bodybuilder type dude. You know, I got buddies who would say he got an arm like a leg. But in this part, you hear him talk about, well, um, how that's not all there is to him. What I mean by that is in this next part of our conversation, Alan starts talking about not fitting the stereotype of someone who is open about their mental health, about someone who faces sort of unbelievable darkness. And just a warning here, um, there is a mention here of suicide in this part of the conversation. But he knows he doesn't look the part of the person who would be having this conversation. And that's why he thinks he needs to be the one having it. Here's the rest of my conversation with Alan Richson. Yeah, I don't fit the profile, right? Of, a, of a, someone who's going to be vulnerable speaking, and open. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, big dude. Um, I've, you know, I've been successful as far as, you know, uh, f- you know, financially speaking for many years. I've, like, this career has been very good to me. Yeah. Um, you know, you don't think of somebody that um, is, you know, sort of a guy trapped in a leading man physique with a lot of money, you know, like wanting to kill themselves, you yeah, know? Yeah. And so because it doesn't fit and because it's not a narrative I expected, I certainly cannot be alone in um, the the fact that, that many of us experience um, depressive episodes that uh, can steal from us, you know, and uh, those that can come in degrees, you know, how, how um, our, our minds can rob us um, in great and small ways. And sometimes there's a finality to that that is uh, so tragic. Um, it would be a real crime. It would be a travesty if I kept my experience a secret. So as much as I, I would love to ignore the fact that I'm a suicide survivor and it's still very hard to talk about, um, uh, you know, I, I, I tried to t- take my life by hanging in my mid thirties. And, uh, if I, if I didn't share what I've learned, I feel like my life would be meaningless, you know? If, so, if you didn't share with other people, if you weren't able to be open, uh, uh, open and honest with, so that people understand that they, they too are, are not alone for going through this. That, that depression and suicidal ideation and, su- and, 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 and suicidal actions don't have a profile. Right. You know what I mean? They don't only happen to certain kinds of people. Yeah. Depress- yeah d- d- depression doesn't just like, uh, like it doesn't handpick like the right person. Yeah. You know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like the person that you'd expect. Yeah. Like I, <clears throat> I didn't, um, I've always been a, like a very happy-go-lucky guy. Yeah. I didn't think that it would happen to me. In fact, I didn't understand it to the point that if somebody told me before this, before my experience with it, if somebody told me that they were depressed, I, in my head, I'm like, well, just get off your ass and like, dude, like yeah. go work out. Go, 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 go for a hike. Call, call yeah. a friend. Dude, if you just work out, I feel great. You get a runner's high. Like, and also if you really have it, then you just take medication. Like yeah. just go do something. Yeah. You know, yeah. like, it, um, and and once you experience the grip, uh, the talons that it can sink into you, uh, you realize how sinister this thing is and how out of control the biology can really be for somebody who's in the midst of it. Um, and uh, the, the confounding expression that it can have with suicidal ideation, where for me at least, and I think this is true for many people, people that I've spoken to, that... Uh, you can feel like suicide would be a real gift to those you love because that you would no longer be a burden to them. That is something I hope 
my openness and honesty about the condition and my survival being on the other side of it and having a lot more clarity and, um, uh, you, you know, ha- having, um, you know, a little more logic and reason happening in the, in the chemistry, um, can prevent people from doing something before they're, they're arriving at the place, you know, they arrive at the place that I've been. So, um, you know, I went from, um, this place of, of utter exhaustion, mm-hmm. uh, of forcing, uh, long-term mania in order to generate the kind of work demands that were, that, that I was accepting that I was walking into. I took, took on too much. I was running a film fund. I was writing books and manuscripts for people as a ghostwriter. I was selling scripts. Um, you know, as a member of the WGA, I was directing films. I was uh, producing, I was starring in a TV show. Mm-hmm. Uh, like it was too much. <laughs> and, uh, and I, my, my, my idea of success at the time was what many of us are told. You work hard, you, um, you, you make good choices, and you'll see success, which will come in the form of um, uh, lots of financial gain mm-hmm. and status in your community. Mm-hmm. And maybe if you're real lucky, you can help other people along the way. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of like the... That's like like the mantra yeah. that most of yeah. us sort of uh, try to abide by. It yeah. sounds really good. Yeah. Um, and I can tell you from experience, you know, while accumulating a lot of wealth, and I had like all these fancy cars, and I had a great house, and I even had a lovely family that I adore. Um, that you realize there is nothing at the top, and so I was grinding, grinding working 20 hours a day sometimes to try to get it all done um, for, for, for months on end, uh, like, you know, no hyperbole. It was, um, it, le- it left me empty and I realized th- there's nothing at the top. There's nothing there's at just, the top. There's meaning, just more. There, you, there's you, there's no getting, there's no getting to the summit and okay, I did it. Right. No. What do you do when you're yeah. at the top? Yeah. Then, then you're just, you know, you're around a circle of billionaires who all have double lives because they're miserable. Yeah. You know, I got a really uh, grotesque picture of life at the top. Yeah. And it's it scared me a little bit and it wore me down. And I realized there was something so vacuous about it and so empty and so temporal. And it was confounding. I've since discovered, I think why we're here is, you know, I do I do have faith. I, I believe in God. Mm-hmm. I believe that we're made to to become an act of worship for our Creator, to live our lives in a way that just everything we do is an act of worship, celebrating the life that we've been given, and to celebrate each other, and to find ways to lift each other up, and just you know make each world that we run into a brighter one. It's very simple, and it's very fulfilling, and I'm not very good at it. <laughs> I'm, you know. I'm I'm a very aggressive, stubborn, strong-willed um perfectionist who yeah. expects way too much of myself and yeah. and uh far too much of others. You know, I'm I'm like not easy to live with. Mm-hmm. I've got bipolar, I'm mm-hmm. temperamental. Like I'm an artist who is very demanding. I'm like it's I I'm 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 the wrong candidate to be having this conversation. I can assure you. I'm yeah. like I, like I'm not the, like the poster child for yeah. this yeah. movement. Yeah. <laughs> and yet here I am yeah. like talking about it with you because I was found in this condition and I was called to awaken to that truth that I, I truly feel is um, much bigger than myself. And I hope all of us awaken to because there is something um, 
there is something abounding in like peace when you f- are serving other people in the world with your life in, in every creative way that you can. And that's, that's where I am. But I needed to go through, you know, I needed to walk through those. Go, go through hell to, to get there. Yeah. 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 And so to answer your question, to go to bring it back to what you were saying about, how, you know, wearing your heart on your sleeve and why, I mean, that's why, because, you know, because of what I found, like if I didn't talk about this, I, because I know there, I've gotten so many letters from people just by being, just by sharing my experience. I'm not even like, I'm not even really giving great answers. I'm just like, this is what I've been through, but I'm still here. And I'm glad I'm still here. It's enough for people to write me and go like, I was going to commit suicide and I felt so hopeless, but the way you explain it, it makes sense. And so, so now I'm doing all these things to like reorient my life and, and I'm glad and I have a family and, you know, wow, like I'm going to keep doing that. Yeah. You know, you made it through it. Yeah, and and I want other people to make it through too. I mean, and I'm, I promise I'm not just being glib here, and I'm not I'm, I'm not just doing being clever, but like there 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 were moments. I mean, it's such an incredibly dark time we're living in right now. And when I was watching this film, especially when I got to the end, and again before I found out it was a real life story, I, I was just sort of grateful for something that reminded me that people have goodness in them. You know, and don't the, we need that? I mean, it yeah. sounds cliche. To think like, oh, we need this movie to remind us of like how important community is and yeah. how we can do things for strangers. To, and, yeah. yeah. Um, but it really is the perfect portrayal of that. And, and um, it's, it's a, a story that I think we, we, we need more of. Uh, and, and we need to be reminded as human beings from time to time that like, oh, that's who we – that's what we're capable of. That's, that's really where our untapped potential exists is in our ability to move mountains for each other. That's what this movie does. Um, uh, I can't begin to tell you what a pleasure to meet you, man. Oh, well, thank you. It was a pleasure to meet you too. Thanks, thanks for coming in. I've heard so many great things about you. You know, oh, I'm, an, I'm from the U.S., so I, I'm, so I, you know, I haven't listened to your show a ton, but yeah. everybody that I've talked to is like <laughs> gushing. Oh. Like can't like. In fact, we changed my flight pattern so that I could come do this in person because we were going to do like a Zoom thing, and I've heard so many things about you. I was like, oh. I think I have to do this in person because I've heard just you're the best. Thanks. Well, uh, yeah, thank you so much. Very kind of you to say, and I know you're going to end this with. And to be honest, meh. <laughs> and, uh, and they were t- all wrong yeah, everyone was telling me uh, this is going to be the greatest and you know to be honest uh, 3 out of 10 <laughs> and lovely to meet you thank you so much for coming in thank you so much uh, my, my guest has been the Al- uh, actor Alan Richson you can watch his new series Reacher on Amazon Prime and his new film Ordinary Angels is in theaters now uh, yeah th- I mean 3 out of 10 from, from me uh, uh, 10 out of 10 10 out of 10 for Alan Richson. As I mentioned there, you can find his series Reacher on Amazon Prime. Ordinary Angels is in theaters now. Before we get going, it's worth mentioning if you or someone you know is in distress, um, help is out there. You can find immediate support at the Crisis Helpline by dialing 988. I'm Tom Power. You're listening to Q. There's a new Canadian film getting a lot of attention right now. It's called Seagrass. It's a really interesting, really different look at the Japanese-Canadian experience, and in particular, the intergenerational trauma that Japanese internment during World War II has had on so many families for so many years. Like, I think uh, up until now, we get a lot of stories of the internment itself, but this film shows the, the legacy of the internment and how it's still... It shows its head in, in families in Canada 
even now. Seagrass is the directorial feature debut of Japanese-Canadian actor and filmmaker Meredith Hama-Brown. Meredith already had a lot of buzz around her for her short films, and that certainly continued with this feature film. Seagrass premiered at the Toronto International Film Festival last year, won the International Film Critics Prize there. It's a big deal. TIFF named it one of their top 10 Canadian films of last year, and now Seagrass is getting its full cinematic release. Meredith Hamba-Brown spoke to our guest host, Talia Schlanger, about the film. Here's their conversation. Hi, Meredith. Hello. Hi. It's so great to be here. There's so much to talk about um, with mm-hmm. Seagrass. It tells the story of a Japanese-Canadian woman at a retreat with her family in British Columbia. Can you tell me a little bit more about the premise and, and what Judith is is trying to do there? Yeah, absolutely. For anyone who hasn't seen the film, um, it starts with... Uh, you know, Judith has recently lost her mother. And so she's brought her family to the self-development retreat, her husband and two daughters to mend a, a rift in her marriage. Um, and the story really falls follows herself and her two daughters. And I think that what's really happening in the film, what I really wanted to explore is less, less so a story about divorce and much more a story about uncertainty and kind of the very kind of fearful human emotions that come up during this time for these three family members. Um, And Judith is very much at a crossroads in her life. She's questioning so much about her identity. Um, That includes her being a Japanese Canadian person, but also her identity as a woman, as a mother, as a wife, and really trying to, you know, find a sense of self-actualization in many ways. That word uncertainty is a very good one. And the tone that you set in the film is so palpable. Like, I don't think I took a full yeah. <laughs> breath the whole time that I was watching it, right? Like, it has this, it has this tension that you just sort of feel for the whole, the whole duration. I'm so happy to hear you say that, because <laughs> that was definitely the goal. And, you know, in conversations um, about the film, I, I, when I'm asked what I'm, what I was trying to do with the film, it always starts with uncertainty. That was really kind of the core emotion that I wanted to touch on. Well, my, my mom passed away recently. Five months ago. Yeah, and I don't know, I'm, I'm just suddenly questioning. I'm sorry, I just, I'm just really happy to be here to, you know, work on things. Why did you set the film in the 90s? That is a great question. Um, The 90s is very significant because, um, you know, of course, the film centers on the intergenerational trauma from the incarceration of Japanese Canadians in the 1940s. And I wanted to look at that legacy. So, you know, I was really intrigued with looking at the character of Judith being a mother and her mother having gone through that. So the 90s was really appropriate you know, an appropriate time period for Judith to be kind of having these questions about her own mother, these unanswered questions, really. Um, And then also having her own children who are young as well. The you mentioned the internment camps, um, and so many Mm -hmm. people don't know a lot about this history, the Second World War, right? 23,000 Japanese people were evicted from their homes and held mm-hmm. in these makeshift camps. And they had their mm-hmm. businesses and their assets and their, their belongings taken from them. And they were allowed to move to the coast of BC until 1949, four yeah. years after the war ended. This is so much trauma. Tell me how this 
intergenerational trauma affects Judith in the character, who I'll remind people her her mother would have been the generation of of Japanese people who were interned mm-hmm. in these camps. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that, of course, it affects her in so many ways. And I think what I'm looking at a lot in the film is, you know, the history and the culture that were lost as a result of this. And, you know, this is something that happened to Judith, but I think it's quite, it, it is quite universal that this is something that impacted so many Japanese Canadian families and Japanese American families. Um, of course, there were some differences Um between Canada and the US. Um, Like you mentioned in Canada, Japanese Canadians were not allowed to return to the coast until 1949, years after the war. And many Japanese Canadians were just dispossessed of their homes. So they had nowhere to return to even. Um, And as a result, communities were completely fractured. So, you know, there there weren't these vibrant Japanese Canadian communities that had existed pre-war and pre-incarceration. So, you know, a lot of language was lost, a lot of culture was lost. And on top of that, a lot of people from my grandparents' generation, I think that they really just didn't want to talk about the experience with their kids. It's hard to say, you know, the exact reasons, um, whether it was just a sense of feeling shame from the shame put on them, or, you know, whether it was too painful. It's it's hard to say, but I know this was a very common thing, that there was this culture of silence after And, you know, for me, I think that just really is part of the trauma manifesting psychologically. So, yeah, I think in the film, you know, some people have watched the film. They said, oh, why doesn't Judith care about learning these things or why didn't she care? But I think it's it's actually the result of the trauma that has created this. You know, there wasn't that discussion and now it's too late. Or maybe there was a feeling that she couldn't talk to her parents about it. so, yeah, that's definitely something that I'm trying to excavate in the film. Yeah, and we sit, see her sit with the pain of that, right? There are all mm-hmm. these unanswered questions, and now the person that could answer them for her has passed on, um, mm-hmm. right? Like, we see her not mourning just, like, a person, her mom, but mourning a connection to a culture and a, a first, a first, first-hand access to, to somebody that can tell you your own, your mm-hmm. own story. Exactly, and that's that's exactly it, and also... You know, I think her husband says at one point, well, why don't you ask your siblings? And it's a little bit simplistic when he says that, I think. And, you know, it probably doesn't sit quite right with her because, you know, it's not just about the fact of knowing the exact information. It's more like the fact that why wasn't there that openness and that discussion? That's where the pain is, I think, for her. Yeah. Was it something that you talked about in your own family, can I ask? Yeah, so definitely... um, you know, as I said, very much the story itself is fictional, but this part of the story, I think, definitely comes from my own experience in terms of, you know, so much has been lost in our family as well. Um, and, you know, when I speak to my mom and my aunts about it, I don't know, you know, they may or may not see it the same way, but it, it's been really interesting. You know, so many of my uh, my mom came to see the film, my aunts came to see the film, and it's just really interesting to kind of have them see it and and think on it. And like, you know, they may see things differently, but it was really beautiful to be able to share the film with them. I think I've been programmed not to think about certain things. What do you mean? I don't know. My parents were, I think they were a bit ashamed or something. Hmm. So I was, I was wondering, right? Hmm. And you don't have to answer, but 
Did your parents ever go back to the coast when they, you know, when they were allowed to? No, they they stayed in the interior. Yeah. Uh, the film includes, you know, some trauma and some mental health. And correct me yeah. if I'm wrong, but I think that you've said in an interview that you're somebody who has anxiety, who has a great deal of anxiety mm-hmm. in in life, and. I wanted to ask about that as it relates to filmmaking, because on the one yeah. hand, filmmaking seems like a very stressful job, but also it on the, yeah, right. <laughs> but also on the other hand, like having anxiety means that you have thought a lot about potential disasters maybe before they've happened. And I could think that that could be an adaptive trait for a filmmaker. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. No, I do have more anxiety than probably anyone needs, just generally speaking. But, you know, I do try to look at it in in the way that you're talking about, where sometimes it is a gift and like, you know, all of our brains are so different. And of course, it's like very stressful, you know, having a brain that maybe works differently than other people's. But for what it's worth, I do think that anxiety has in many ways helped me as, as a filmmaker, because I, I kind of you know, you're right. I'm always kind of scanning the horizon and there's so much that can go wrong in films. You really want to be kind of ahead of it. And so, yeah, I definitely say that I I do that constantly and it's a little bit stressful for me as it's happening, but it, it has helped in a lot of ways as well. Yeah. Then it's finding that adaptive line, like where you're like, okay, this is, this is serving me. This is serving the art versus. Yeah. Like, (laughs) Versus hindering me. <laughs> yeah, I want to. Yeah. I want to end on the the title of the the film, um, which is Seagrass. And I heard that mm-hmm. the the title came from a deleted scene. Can you tell me about that? So the title Seagrass came from a scene between the two sisters when they're talking about fear, and the younger sister is in a really bad place. Emmy and Stephanie is trying to comfort her. And she's giving her this kind of, you know, she's telling her this story about how she overcame fear. And she had this fear of swimming through seagrass because she thought, you know, something would come out of the depths of the water and grab her ankle. Um, And one day she just swam through the seagrass and she wasn't afraid anymore. So it's kind of this nice moment between them where... Uh, you know, the older sister's trying to help and protect her younger sister. I ended up getting rid of the scene just because, you know, in the editing room, there's so much that needs to go. Um, And in the end, it just wasn't necessary to have it. But the name stuck because I think it was always a metaphor that I really loved. And it's also, I think there's something very symbolic about the idea of seagrass. When I envision seagrass, I just see this kind of eerie, mysterious, beautiful plant at the bottom of the dark ocean. And to me, that felt very appropriate for the film. It kind of works with what you said about anxiety and filmmaking too, right? That like fear, totally. fear isn't just one thing, right? It's not just a, a scary thing that can be a detriment. It can also be a, a beautiful thing. Absolutely. And it's no coincidence that this whole film is about uncertainty because <laughs> as someone with anxiety, it definitely is is something that I'm up against at times. So I think overall, the film is is reflecting that as well. What would what would you hope somebody would take away from the film about living in uncertainty? I think that the only thing that we all need to recognize about uncertainty is that it's it's human and that it's somewhat inevitable. Um, and I think you know there's no getting rid of uncertainty as humans i don't think so it's more just about accepting it and learning to to live with it and i think in the film 
that's why I, I choose in the film not to answer every single question and wrap up every single thing to have this nice, neat ending, because I don't think that's true to life. I wanted to approach the film in the same way, uh, which is just with that honesty around uncertainty, which is that some things stay uncertain and some things get resolved. And that's that's just life. <laughs> we'll end it there. Thank you, Meredith. And congrats on your on your debut feature film. Amazing. Thank you so much. Meredith Hama-Brown is the Vancouver-based filmmaker who spoke with guest host Talia Schlanger. Meredith's debut feature film, Seagrass, is in cinemas across the country now. All right, that is it for the show today. Are you watching the new Canadian Law & Order? Law & Order Toronto Criminal Intent? (laughs) There it is. That's, that's, That's it right there. Um, Karen Robinson is one of the stars of the new Canadian Law and Order. She'll be here to talk about her role in the show, the complicated feeling she had around taking it, and the moment she was able to tell her father she was in Law and Order and what that meant to him. That's tomorrow on the show. We'll see you soon, later on. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.